That's Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with them. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, "'Teacher, don't you care if we drown?' He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, "'Quiet, be still!' Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, "'Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith?' They were terrified and asked each other, "'Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him.'" They went across the lake to the, re- to the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began in the Decapolis to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jarius came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. 
At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jarius, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they had said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he had put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let me add my welcome and also my congratulations. If you managed to uh, get here this morning to church, you either live close enough to walk or you found one of those miraculous car parks. So uh, well done for making it. Uh, if you're new or visiting, we're looking at Mark's Gospel. We're continuing to look at the first half of Mark uh, as we lead up into Easter, uh, as we remember Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, a great way to prepare is by looking at just exactly who he is, that question hanging over us non-stop, who is Jesus? Uh, and as we look more deeply at what Amy just read to us, why don't we pray that God would speak to us this morning. Our Lord and Father, we thank you that we can come this day uh, with your people and in your presence. Uh, we thank you that we can know you uh, and we pray this morning that uh, you would fill us with an even deeper and greater love for you. Uh, Father, wherever we are coming from, whatever's been happening in the week and uh, in, in gone past, we ask that this morning, by your spirit, you would speak clearly to us. Uh, take other thoughts out of our mind and help us to fix them clearly upon the Lord Jesus, that we might become more and more like him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, one of the more disappointing things about growing up is that realisation uh, you aren't in control. So, so when you're a child, you know, as a, as a child, your parents run the show and and gradually, uh, more and more responsibility they hand over to you, more and more things you're allowed to do. And, and so by the time you get to your late teens, perhaps your, your early adulthood, you kind of go, great, I've been raised to take control of my life, independence, here I go. And then, uh, some moment after that, you have this realisation, actually, I'm, I'm not really in control. Uh, and I never will be. Now, for some people, that realisation um, creeps up incrementally, you know, just thousands of tiny unrealised dreams and plans just add up over time. For others, it's, it's a moment, an instant. The, you know, the, the man who admitted to me that uh, while they're the same curious, lively person they always were, uh, with age has just meant a loss of energy. They, they don't have the, the control to pursue the passions they've still got. 
Uh, or the overachieving woman struggling to, to keep her 10 to 12 hour workday along with her pregnancy, just realising, oh, being human means you just can't do all the things you want to do. Uh, for one young man, it was uh, standing by the grave of someone he loved. You know, when was that moment for you? you know, the realisation that uh, we aren't in control is more than just saying, oh, things don't always go to plan. It's that moment you realise uh, no matter what plan you came up with, you still couldn't fix the situation. You know, that, that there are just problems beyond you. And once you realise that you're not in control, the important questions shift. They become, who is uh, and how do I relate to them? So this morning's sections of Mark is a word of comfort. If you've ever struggled with that truth that you're not in control, here is a word of comfort. Because uh, we look again and ask that question, who is Jesus? And a simple answer, Jesus is Lord of all. He is Lord of all. Uh, Mark shows it to us in four scenes. So uh, Jesus just finished explaining the truth about God's kingdom to, to, to whittle down the, the crowd that flocked for a miracle. So he taught hard truths to kind of separate who was really in and out. And after a block of teaching that we looked at last week, um, Mark has Jesus go back to action. First of all, scene one, action shot, uh, it's as Lord of creation. So in 4 verse 35, uh, Jesus leaves the crowds behind. Uh, he gets, as uh, Beck so beautifully demonstrated to us before with the kids, he gets in his boat, he sees Gentile territory, uh, and he gets crossing. Now, now the sea there, uh, the Sea of Galilee, is surrounded by mountains. Uh, even now, uh, wild storms can whip, out, whip up without much notice. Uh, wasn't unheard of, but, but this one's ferocious. Now, several of the disciples were fishermen, uh, but in verse 38, they are scared for their life while uh, their carpenter friend is sleeping soundly. Yeah, and the sea, you've got to realise, in the, in the thinking of people of those days, is the place of chaos. So in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God uh, formed the, the order of this world out of the chaos of water. Uh, you go to the very end, the other end of the Bible, uh, and in Revelation, John has this heavenly vision of the future, of, of a future without the sea. Uh, not literally, but the sense is what's done away with is uncontrolled ferocity. That chaos is gone. Uh, and so in the middle of the night, out on this sea, chaotic destruction is just filling the disciples with fear. Uh, but the Lord of the elements just steps forward. Verse 39, Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind died down and it was completely calm. Now, Jesus speaks to, he addresses the storm as though it's some force that is opposed to him and his disciples. But with a word, he silences it. Someone actually told me they've tried this trick at the, um, at the ocean. Uh, <laughs> they went to the beach and told the waves to try and stop. I'm not entirely sure what they would have done if the waves had listened to them. Uh, not surprisingly, they didn't. Yeah, the disciples' question shows, doesn't it, that, that they know this is more than just another miracle. They know Psalm 65, verse 7, that Graham read to us. They know that, the, that only God himself can still the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves. So in, in verse 41, they ask that question, who is this man? That is, who is this one who is doing what God alone does? Now, here is the Lord of creation. Now, we've had storms and flooding uh, in the past few weeks in New South Wales and Southern Australia, um, a reminder of creation's power. 
You know, we, we can forget the danger of water, can't we? Because we, we kind of swim in North Sydney Pool or you know, paddle within about 50 metres from the, the edge of the water when we go to Balmoral. But you know, when thousands are forced from their homes, when, when a man is swept to death trying to drive through the floods, as happened just south of Canberra a week or so ago, you realise we're not in control. You know, plenty of people have been trying to you know, stop the rain in the last week, but, but it's not going to listen to us, only Jesus, the Lord of all. And without dropping a beat, we then move to the next scene. We've seen him, uh, the Lord of creation. Mark then has the boat safely arrive uh, in the Gerasenes. Um, he presents Jesus there as the Lord again, but this time the Lord over evil. So the instant Jesus steps onto the shore in verse 2, this, this man, gripped by demonic forces, comes to greet him. Uh, in some sense, we get this idea that Jesus' holy presence just coming into that territory forces these evil kind of spirits into action. They have to come to him. And they are evil. Uh, we get this uncharacteristic, lengthy description of just this man's pathetic state. Normally, Mark is pretty brief on details, but, but we see the situation. He's in verse 2. This man lives among the dead and he houses what's killing him. In the following verses, we see there that he, he's in there partly because he can't live with others. Uh, people in verse 3 have tried binding him. Literally, it's they've tried taming him. That is, he's been treated like an animal. You know, in every sense, we see this man and he has been stripped of his humanity. You know, these evil spirits are at work trying to destroy the image of God in him. And they recognise Jesus' power. And they come and they fall at his feet in mock worship. And in verse 7, um, they name Jesus. They say, we know who you are. Uh, it's an attempt by them to kind of claim power over him. And these tormentors beg, oh, Jesus, don't torment us. And there's power in their numbers. Uh, in verse 9, they're a legion. A, a Roman legion was uh, 6,000 soldiers and 120 horsemen. Now, whether or not it's a, a literal legion's worth of demons in this man, the point is he is gripped by a demonic army. But Jesus is Lord over evil. Yeah, he listens to their begging because now is not the time for the final destruction of all evil. So in verse 13, he does. He sends them into a herd of swine. And the irony for them is that all their attempts to avoid destruction, these spirits are so obsessed with evil, they drive the pigs into the sea, the sea that Jesus just rescued his disciples from, the chaos and destruction there. I want to say, if you're sitting here you know, with your... RSPC hat on and you're getting overly worried about the poor pigs or, or you're with your financial banking hat and you're a little worried about the financial cost to the swine herds who just lost 2,000 pigs. Um, this story is a real jolt to your values. You know, a human being is released from the bondage to evil. Uh, he's released from isolation and self-harm and dehumanising violence. You know, isn't one person worth more than a few thousand pigs? Now, Jesus understands that priority. Yeah, and he is the Lord over evil. I suspect today we're more comfortable um, with a, understanding this man's problems in terms of medical rather than spiritual terms. You know, we'd like to analyse it with you know, our modern scientific wisdom. But as someone pointed out, uh, we've renamed the demons of the past but not exercised them. Now, there is still evil that seems to go beyond what is reasonable even for sinful people. Uh, one columnist wrote after a terrorist bombing which claimed many lives, including uh, a daycare centre. He wrote, 
from what universe beyond this one that most of us inhabit does this kind of evil arise? Now you look at what's happening in Syria and it is cause to wonder, where, just where does that rise from? Now there's, there's just some evil still in this world that is beyond what seems the, even the darkness of an average soul and far beyond our control to solve. But not beyond Jesus. Not beyond the one who is Lord even over evil. And heading back across the water, uh, the crowd regather around Jesus in verse 21. Uh, and Mark keeps that, that sense of urgency as we, we, we move to the next scenes. He actually wedges the, the final two scenes into one, keep the pace going. Um, he shows us Jesus who's Lord over, over sickness and death. So in verse 22, uh, a synagogue ruler, Jairus, comes and he falls at Jesus' feet. Now you've got to get the idea. Um, put yourself in the picture. Jairus is a man of dignity. He is a man who is respected around town. Uh, he is a religious leader. Uh, and held in honour. Uh, he's actually from the class who have been setting themselves in opposition to Jesus. Yeah, we see later on in the story he's got servants, that, you know, he's wealthy. And yet this man comes to beg Jesus, not send someone else. You know, without a trace of pride, he falls before Jesus. Why? Because sickness has struck his home. You know, the situation is beyond his control. In verse 23... He shares with Jesus how his daughter is on death's doorstep and he's got nowhere else he can go. And Mark kind of highlights the desperation of the whole situation because he, he interrupts the story by introducing us to this equally desperate woman. You know, she is everything that Jairus isn't. Um, so she's this woman whose, whose constant bleeding has made her ritually unclean. So she's been unwelcome in that synagogue Jairus is a ruler at and a leader at for, for over a decade. You know, her suffering uh, for 12 years has bled her, not just physically, but financially. She's been bled dry. Verse 26 talks about how she's spent it all trying to find a cure. She is everything that Jairus isn't, except in one way, they are both desperate people. And there she is under the grip of sickness. You know, both have come aware that they're not in control. And they've come to the one that they think can actually do something about sickness and even death. And the crowd jostles around, but, but in faith she kind of reaches out and she grabs his clothes, she touches him in verse 28, and, and she senses her healing. And Jesus, he knows that something's happened as well. And so in verse 30, he asks that strange question, at least the disciples think it's strange, um, who touched me? Now he forces her not just to have a, a, simply a private faith, but a public declaration. Now Jesus isn't asking to embarrass her, he's asking to embrace her. You know, this woman who has been for so long cast out, for so long unwelcome, she's publicly declared acceptable. Uh, verse 34, his words to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. You go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. Uh, the sense of peace there, uh, shalom, it, it's more than that kind of we're not at war with each other. It's, it's that sense of wholeness and well-being. It's that sense of security and salvation. And he, he's sending her away knowing that she matters. And she's been released. As the story pans out, we see, oh, that delay with her meant Jairus' daughter's not just sick, she's dead. Uh, Jesus might be great in storms. He's really good with evil spirits. He can do sickness. But what about that area where at least our lack of control is most exposed? 
You know, if you've been with someone grieving, you'd know that sense of just being lost for words when someone passes away. Now, what is Jesus going to say in the face of death? Verse 36. Don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. And he goes to the bedside of the girl and with just a, a small group of witnesses, uh, he speaks simple words that bring life. Little girl, arise. And instantly she's kind of up and walking. Um, she eats at the very end, not just to kind of, you know, give menu tips, but show she's not a ghost, she is fully restored. Now Jesus has come up against our greatest enemies, sickness and death, and he has triumphed as the Lord is all. And the, the pain, perhaps, and the excitement, perhaps, of those last stories, maybe that's the easiest one for us to hold on to, to grasp. Because there is nothing quite like being by the bedside of someone gravely ill. There is nothing like being at the graveside of someone you love to make it clear that you're not in control. And his triumph is what the whole section has been building to over death. You know, there's this death motif that's run through this whole passage. Uh, So the disciples are caught in a life-threatening storm. The the demonic guy lives in the grips of death. That is, he lives amongst tombs in Gentile lands, a a spiritually, physically dead zone. Uh, Jairus' wealth, it it can't buy his daughter's life back. And and this woman has spent this decade that effectively socially and and relationally in in religious death, separated from everyone else in uncleanliness. No no matter where he turns in this section, Jesus is facing death in, in all its variety of forms. But as strong as those enemies are, Jesus is the victor. He masters creation with a word. Uh, Demons get driven out. Uh, Disease disappears instantly. Uh, Death gets made fun of as though it's just sleeping. No enemy is a match for the Lord of all. This morning as you're here now, as you're asking that question, who is Jesus? I hope you appreciate it. I hope you're seeing just how great our Lord is. And if you've got it, two implications. Two implications for us who realise that we aren't in control. First is realise that nothing is beyond Jesus. Nothing is beyond his authority. Nowhere, no one, no force, no place, no power, no person, nothing is beyond him. All nations are under his control. So the original audience, when they would have read of this scene, would have been struck by Jesus kind of storming into Gentile territory and asserting he's got power over there as well. He's got power over a legion of spirits. That is, Jesus wasn't restricted to just winning at home. You know, he could play away and be victorious. You know, he has control everywhere. You know, there is a king in Australia. You know, whether or not people acknowledge, Jesus is the king. Uh, to adapt Proverbs 21 a little... Now, the Prime Minister's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it wherever he pleases. There is a king over all nations, including ours. And, and you can add to that, there is a king over all your worries. There is a Lord over that. Um, a common feature of early Christian art was to, um, to depict the church like that boat in the storm at the end of chapter 4. That is, in their kind of early artworks, they recognise that we, like the disciples, are just like them in, in, in that, that night in the Sea of Galilee. That is, we're not free from difficulties. Uh, they rage and storm all around us. And you and I both know that. But like those disciples, they recognise that the church, God's people, would be sustained by Jesus until the time he restores creation. 
You know, he keeps us on the boat, even in the midst of storm. So that you know, one day on the resurrection morning, when he returns and he raises everyone back up, we will be able to look back and say, he has been good, even in our pain. And he is Lord, not just of your worries, he is Lord even of evils, your evils. They are beyond his power. C.S. Lewis spoke of his pre-conversion self this way. He described himself as a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. But Jesus' power can change that. Uh, a former chaplain at Lithgow Jail recently uh, revisited and he wrote this up of his trip back there. He said, As I was walking through the yard, the first bloke to see me was Steve. Uh, Steve is a big bloke. He walked over and he gave me a great bear hug. Steve is a murderer and he had lived a violent life when he came to jail uh, in the late 20s. He's late 20s. Being thrown in jail caused him to ask the question of what life was all about and the Lord heard his question and gave him the answer and Steve is a mightily changed man. People who knew him before don't recognise him. Not just his behaviour but his physical appearance has changed. He's still a big man but his face has changed. It's no longer creased by a scowl of hatred. Steve loves the Lord, loves his word, loves meeting with God's people. It was good to see how God continues to bless this man who is a murderer. Yet that Jesus has power everywhere. Jail might be an evil place and evil things happen in jail. Evil people are in jail. But the reality is Jesus rules even there. You know, his victory at Calvary and rising up again means that there are murderers, there are drug dealers, there are thieves at Lithgow Jail whose names are written in the book of life and one day will sit next to us at that heavenly feast. You know, we aren't in control. But thankfully, nothing is beyond the Lord Jesus' control. And so secondly, if you've grasped that, learn to beg. Learn to beg. And perhaps the hardest part of this passage is not that we're not in control. I suspect you knew that before you came here this morning. And perhaps the hardest bit of grasp is not that Jesus is in control. You probably knew that as well. Perhaps the hard bit is, why is it that if he's in control, he doesn't give us all the good we ask for. You know, you've asked him to help you break that, that you know, pattern of short temper and that slavery to anger. You know, you've asked him for a good marriage and a family life and, and you've asked him for relief from suffering and a miraculous healing and you've not received. You know, I've had that sense, looking at this, of that disconnect. Uh, and if that's you... Keep begging. Not that Jesus grants every request. Um, in the Gerasenes, Jesus listens to the begging of demons and he listens you know, to the begging of the townsfolk who say, get away from us, we don't want you. He listens to their begging. The only person he doesn't listen to over in the Gerasenes is the man he healed. In 5.18, the only request he refused, that man begs, I want to go with you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I'm turning you away. You're not getting what you want. Now, he won't always grant what we ask for, what you beg for. But we do know his character is doing good. And we do know that long-term he will destroy these enemies. You know, the miracles that he did in his life were appointed to the future, but there is a timing issue. Um, he doesn't wipe out all evil now because it means destruction for those who have not yet repented. And so for now, there's nothing else we can do but beg. 
you know, the bleeding woman and the Jairus, they might have been, you know, opposite ends of the social spectrum, but they both realised they needed to desperately reach out to Jesus. And here's the fool that I am. I'm completely aware of so many things beyond my control, and yet I'm slow to pray. So slow. You know, I'm inclined to write the big challenges off and so I just kind of focus in on the smaller things, the things that I can control. And when what I should do is keep my focus on the big things, the big enemies, and, and beg. Now, one of the things I love most about our 8am service, if you've never been to our formal 8am service, you know, lash out, give it a go. One of the things I love most about uh, there is that the prayers, the formal prayers of the prayer book, that, that sense in those prayers of complete dependence, language like we are unworthy servants, come before God and we ask for mercy over and over again, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. They remind me to beg. Now later after we sing, we're going to share communion together. We're going to come as beggars seeking mercy at his table. We're going to have a time of open prayer. Now let's ask boldly. You know, when the problem is, is so big, it's beyond your control, you can't negotiate, you can't bargain with Jesus but when it's good for us, he will give it. So keep begging. Beg for evil to be broken. Beg for healing to come. Hold on to the words Jesus says of not being afraid. Don't be afraid, only believe. Beg knowing that one day all the benefits that he has won with his victory will be shared with those who trust him. Now we're not in control. Never will be. And praise God that Jesus is. And let's be thankful that God himself is Lord of all. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his great power. We thank you that nothing uh, that we see that rails against him actually can conquer him. Uh, we thank you that this creation, uh, mixed up and marred as it often is, is under his power, that even evil forces can't overcome him. We thank you that sickness and our great enemy death have been defeated. Uh, Father, help us to live completely dependent on him, the one who rules over all. Help us to live assured. Help us to live asking and begging for you to give us what is good for us. In Jesus' name, amen.